0: Before I begin today, I want to say a quick thank you to all of you who have rated, reviewed, recommended and donated to Outlines over the past few months. If you wish to support the show, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com forward slash the Outlines podcast, or to give a one-off amount, you can visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash Outlines podcast. This episode of Outlines contains mention of domestic violence and descriptions of a crime which some may find distressing, so, as always, discretion is advised. On Friday the 6th of November 1987, 23-year-old Peter Brown of Boyne Valley Road in Maidenhead admitted a charge of arson and of endangering the life of his father, 49-year-old Michael Haynes. Michael and Peter's mother, Hilda, had been divorced for years, and both had since remarried. For a long time, Peter had remained friendly with his father, but their relationship had deteriorated, and Peter told the court that he no longer liked him. At the time of the arson, Michael Haynes was living in a lodging house on Clare Road in Maidenhead. It was the afternoon, and he and the other occupants were sleeping off the effects of an afternoon's drinking session when some nearby children spotted smoke pouring from the house. The children alerted a neighbour, who in turn called for the fire brigade. When they got to the scene, they woke Haynes and the other members of the household, all of whom had remained asleep upstairs. Peter Brown, it was established, had arrived at the house sometime after his father and the other residents had fallen asleep, and, sensing opportunity, he had started a small fire near to the lounge curtains. Despite the pouring smoke, the flames caused only minimal damage, and Peter was arrested. In court... Justice Drake heard that Peter was suffering from what was vaguely described in the papers as a mental illness. The judge ordered that he be admitted to Borough Court Hospital under the Mental Health Act, saying he was satisfied that the defendant was mentally disturbed at the time of the offence. It's a short article in the Reading Evening Post, and this is all the information that can be extrapolated from it except that it tells only one part of a much larger story. A story that, by the time Peter Brown set fire to his father's curtains, appears to have been all but forgotten. What the article fails to mention is that not only was Michael Haynes no stranger to the courtroom but that, on no less than three other occasions in a period between January of 1983 and November of 1984, he had appeared as the defendant, first to be found guilty, and later to be cleared of murder. Sometimes people ask me how I confirm the validity of my research, and the answer is that it's a matter of checking and cross-checking everything. Does the article on the arson state that this is the same michael haynes no but i know from ancestry that michael haynes had a child named peter in 1964 which would have made him 23 at the time the fire was set i know that michael's first wife was named hilda and that in 1970 hilda married a man with the surname brown and i know that haynes a resident of Maidenhead, had long suffered with alcohol problems. Oftentimes, like with the 1987 article, it's when you put everything together that a connection becomes a sure thing. But what about when you're not dealing with fact, but with witness testimony and forensic evidence, which could point in one direction or another, depending on how it's read? Then, you might look at everything together and say, Brenda Haynes was murdered by her husband, Michael. Or, you could look at it and say, Brenda Haynes, who was suffering with a mental illness, committed suicide. In 1983, when the trial of Michael Haynes took place, this was the conundrum placed before the jury. And even now, almost 40 years later, It is a question which we still cannot be sure of the answer to. I'm Jess Carter, and this is The Outlines Podcast. I want to tell you all I can about Brenda Haynes. Sometimes information is easy to come by in cases like this, other times not. I've tried to piece together the facts mentioned at trial with what I can find in official records as best I can, but there are of course large gaps in her timeline. I know that she was born Brenda Betty Miller on the 8th of February, 1932, in Croydon, Greater London. She appears to have come from a large family, all of whom were also born in Croydon. In 1951, 19-year-old Brenda was married for the first time to a man named John Tig, who was 12 years her senior. By 1960, the two, who had one child, were living at 44 gordon road in thatcham near newbury in berkshire by 1964 however brenda had remarried this time her husband's name was trenny bashford and this is where it gets a little difficult to explain on the 1939 england and wales register john tigg Brenda's first husband was recorded as living at 62 Lake Hall Road in Croydon, together with his parents and sister, Beatrice. At number 63 Lake Hall Road, also living with his parents was 21-year-old Trenny Bashford, who was working as a trainee pharmacist. Interestingly, on the record for 16-year-old Beatrice Tigg, Her surname has been crossed out, and in its place is the name Bashford. Further research shows that Beatrice and Trenny were married in Croydon in 1943, and that by 1947 they were living in Newbury. By the early 60s, the two of them were residing at Pollard's on Coleroy Road in Thatcham, a little over a mile away from John and Brenda's home on Gordon Road. It's unclear what the circumstances were which led to Brenda marrying her husband's sister's husband, but in August of 1964, it appears as if Trenny purchased a house at two Longleat Gardens in Maidenhead, where Brenda would live until her death in 1982. By October of that same year, the couple seemed to have had a child together, And while there is a little crossover on the electoral registers early on in their marriage, the two apparently lived in their house in Maidenhead until Trenny, who was 14 years Brenda's senior, passed away on the 2nd of October 1972, aged 54. Brenda, who was 40 at the time, continued living in the house at Longleat Gardens with their son and in 1979, she married again, this time to 41-year-old Michael Haynes, a window cleaner by trade, who was divorced with four children by his first wife, Hilda. In an article from 1984, it stated that Michael had seven children, three with Brenda. As far as I can tell, this is inaccurate. As I mentioned, Brenda had two children and Michael had four, although I did find a record for one more child, born at the end of the 60s, who could have been Michael's. The child's surname was recorded as Haynes, and their mother, who would have been quite young at the time, appears to have lived a few streets away from where Michael's mother lived. This isn't certain, though. When I started writing this section... I was worried I wouldn't have much information to share about Brenda's life and I have a fair amount of detail about where she lived and who she was with but what about her as a person? At Michael Haynes' trial in 1983 it was revealed by Dr Peter Maddox who had treated Brenda several times at his psychiatric unit that she had a history of mental illness and was suffering from manic depression. She had attempted suicide on more than one occasion, and in the months before her death, she had made several attempts on her own life, including overdosing, jumping into a river, and putting a plastic bag over her own head. She had even, apparently, told her hairdresser on the day she died that she wanted to kill herself but that she didn't know how to do it. The marriage between her and Michael was not a happy one, and at the end of 1981, divorce proceedings began at Brenda's request. In 1984, though, Michael would claim, I loved my wife. We had a smashing relationship. I nursed her while she was ill. But was that genuinely the case? And if so... What happened on the day of Brenda's death? It was around eight o'clock in the evening, on the 12th of June, 1982, when Ingrid and John Raphael of Lexington Avenue in Maidenhead, close to Longleat Gardens where the Hayneses lived, heard a knocking at their front door. While Ingrid's name was reported in the papers, John's was not, and, while searching for it, I came across a little snippet of information that, despite its lack of relevance, I really want to include. In 1983, it was reported in the local papers that the Raphaels had rescued a duck named Desi from behind a nearby Sainsbury's freezer centre. Desi is somewhat famous now, as she holds the Guinness World Record for being the oldest ever duck having lived to be a little over 20. That evening, in 1982, however, it was almost a full year before Dessie began her record-breaking reign of the Raphael household. And that evening, the couple answered the door to be greeted by Michael Haynes. Michael, who, according to Ingrid, didn't seem too upset, asked if he could use the Raphael's telephone to call for an ambulance, telling them that Brenda had gone upstairs to have a bath and was now attempting to commit suicide. After the emergency services were called, the trio went together to the Haynes' home to check on Brenda's welfare. On the way over, Ingrid remembered, Michael exclaimed, the silly old cow is always trying this. When the three of them reached the house, they went upstairs, where they found Brenda lying naked on the floor of the landing, just outside the bathroom. Ingrid tested for her pulse, but couldn't find one, and looking to Michael, she asked, How long has she been like that? To which Michael replied, Three quarters of an hour. Despite their efforts to revive Brenda, when the doctor arrived, he certified that she was dead. Reportedly on hearing this, Michael Haynes declared, Stupid cow, why did she do this to me? In a statement read out in court in March of 1983, PC Timothy Price recalled arriving at the house. There, he found Michael, who was dressed in a shirt and shorts, rubbing his wife's hands and saying, Come on, you can make it, girl. We had some good times together. When his statement was taken, he told the police that he had been drinking that day and had brought some whisky home with him. He didn't immediately say so, but later he explained that Brenda had asked for some of the alcohol and told him that she was going to take as many tablets as she could find. According to Michael's version of events, his wife drank what he described as a couple of whiskies, Although a police statement would estimate the amount to have been around four measures of alcohol. Haynes claimed that Brenda appeared down and that after consuming the drinks, she went to have a bath. He added, I found her in the bath. She'd taken an overdose. To illustrate this fact, he reportedly produced a number of empty pill bottles for the police. While he didn't mention it in his initial statement, later he claimed that he allowed Brenda to go upstairs, knowing that there was a chance she would try to kill herself while drunk. I could, he said later, have prevented her death. Continuing his story, he went upstairs to the bathroom, and on entering he saw that Brenda was lying in the bath with her head underwater and foam coming out of her mouth. He said that he got into the bath to pull her out, and when he laid her on the floor, he began trying to give her the kiss of life, before going to Ingrid and John Raphael's to call for the ambulance. Later, it would emerge that there were holes in this initial statement. The timeline wasn't quite accurate, and more than one witness would go on to say that they had doubts about the genuineness of Michael's emotions that night. The courts would be told how he oscillated between apparent distress, tears, and laughter about his wife's death. Despite Brenda's history of mental illness and suicide attempts, on the 15th of March, 1983, a little over nine months after his wife's death, and following a two-day court hearing, magistrates ruled that Michael Haynes, who had pled not guilty to the charge, should be committed to Reading Crown Court to be tried for the murder of his wife. The accusation was that on the 12th of June 1982, he had assaulted and beaten Brenda before drowning her in the bath. Between this hearing and the trial, which took place in May of 1983, a variety of witnesses were heard from. These included the officers who had taken Haynes' initial statement following Brenda's death, the pathologist, Dr Kevin Lee, who had been called upon to examine her body on three separate occasions, and family members and friends who told the court the details of Michael and Brenda's relationship and the events of the days following her death. It emerged that Haynes's later claims that the couple had a smashing relationship were not entirely truthful. At the initial hearing, a statement from Michael's half-brother, Christopher, told of how he had seen Haynes, who was a heavy drinker, hit Brenda on several occasions. His brother, Christopher said, had only married Brenda because he wanted the house. On that front, Kenneth Back, a friend of Michael's, spoke of how he discovered that Brenda had left him with no insurance money following her apparent suicide, and worse, there was nothing for him in her will. The house at Longleat Gardens had been left to her son. Brenda, Michael reportedly told Kenneth, through laughter, was an inconsiderate bitch. Michael Kennedy QC the prosecutor in the May trial, told the jury that while Haynes had shown signs of being upset after Brenda's death, there were also indications that he was putting it on. Haynes's niece Karen said in a statement that she went with her mum a couple of days after Brenda had died to help tidy up the house. She told of how Michael took them to his stepson's bedroom. The stepson was away at boarding school at the time, and there was no reason for any of them to go into his room. They pulled back the covers on the bed, only to find that concealed underneath them were six letters, one of which was addressed to whom it may concern. On seeing the letters, Karen said, Michael began to cry, saying, I know what they are. All six were suicide notes, and on examination it was determined that While all of them were in Brenda's handwriting, they were not new and had probably been in the house for some time. At Reading Crown Court, Bruce Laughland, Michael's lawyer, would describe these notes as being a substantial stumbling block in the Crown's case. While it would have been clear quite quickly that Michael and Brenda's was not a happy marriage... It was when pathologist Kevin Lee examined Brenda that disturbing evidence would come to light. In June of 1982, he carried out two separate examinations, and through these he discovered heavy bruising on her body, some of which, he said, might have been caused by either a weapon or heavy contact to her torso. There was bruising on her arms, legs, back and hip, As well as internal bruising to her head. The arm bruises he found were consistent with either heavy gripping or strikes from a fist. All in all, he catalogued 106 bruises on the first examination and by the second it's reported that more had appeared around her ankles. It was his opinion that the injuries had been inflicted while she was still alive, and that there must have been some level of assault to cause that many marks. Kevin Lee believed that the bruises were not consistent with Michael's statement, and that they were possibly caused by her having been forcibly gripped by someone with considerable strength, and then forced up against the edge of the bath. When cross-examined, though, he conceded that he could not fully exclude the possibility of Brenda having committed suicide and that some of the bruises, individually, could have occurred in the process of removing her from the bath or perhaps by a fall. When Dr Lee's conclusions were first put to Michael, he denied ever having been violent towards Brenda and claimed that he could not tell them how it was that she had so much bruising to her body although he did admit that fresh scratch marks which were visible on his face and arms had arisen from what he described as a bit of a tiff with his wife. Alongside the suspicious findings reported by Dr Lee, there was also a matter of the timeline of that evening. While Michael had initially claimed that after pulling Brenda from the bath onto the landing, he had gone to use the Raphael's telephone – It soon emerged that at 6.50pm that day, the sound of water pouring from an overflow pipe was heard coming from the house. It was almost another hour before the ambulance arrived. This tallies with what Michael told Ingrid Raphael, that Brenda had been that way for about 45 minutes, but added to that, he had reportedly in between giving her the kiss of life changed into dry, clean clothing before going out to seek help. There are various different reports into the level of drugs present in Brenda's body at the time of her death. At the hearing in March, a police analyst's statement claimed that she had taken 20 to 30 Beecham's powder tablets, far over the usual recommended dosage for dealing with a cold or flu, But later, at the May trial, prosecutor Michael Kennedy stated that while Dr. Lee had found traces of drugs in her system, they were consistent with ordinary medication levels and not enough for an overdose. It seems likely that the former was true, because in 1984, it was claimed that she had drunk four measures of whiskey, taken four different prescribed drugs and then consumed 30 painkillers. Regardless of the amounts, Michael had, the prosecution alleged, drugged her with the pills either to make her drowsy or, as Mr Kennedy said, so that she would go gently. But then, they claimed, he had become impatient while he waited for the tablets to work, and so had, in the words of one article, finished her off by holding her under the water. The problem for Michael Haynes was that there were plenty of witnesses who claimed that he was frequently drunk and often violent towards his wife. The final nail in the coffin came from a witness named Paul Hillston, who had come forwards only a few weeks before the trial was due to begin. Hillston had been lodging with Michael in Desborough Close in Maidenhead, which I believe was the road on which his mother lived. He claimed that one night the two of them were drinking together and that, while engaged in what was described as a bizarre karate bout, Haynes had confessed to him that he'd murdered Brenda. Paul Hillsden said that Michael described to him exactly how he had committed the crime, telling him that he had killed her by holding her under the water by her hair and heels. Haynes, Hilsden said, acted out the attack for him. By the end of May, the short trial drew to a close and the jury was sent out to deliberate. They'd heard all the evidence as well as the parting summation of Bruce Laughland, Michael's lawyer. Laughland was known as a skillful and talented lawyer with progressive views on crime and its causes, and he later became a well-respected liberal-leaning judge. But, in his summation, he told the jury that the case was speculative and that while Brenda was, to some extent, a battered wife, that fact alone did not mean that she was murdered. The jury disagreed. And on Thursday, the 26th of May, 1983, Michael was jailed for life for the murder of Brenda Haynes. For the next 14 months, Michael Haynes was kept without contact with his family at Wormwood Scrubs, a Category B prison in London. Later, he'd tell reporters of how he knew that the inmates there were saying, there's the bloke who murdered his wife but the prison staff, he said, were excellent, and he even went so far as to claim that they were like brothers. Despite his conviction, in July of 1984, Haynes was back in front of the judges again, although this time it was the Court of Appeal. The crux of the appeal focused on Paul hillsdon and the validity of Michael's supposed confession. It had only been discovered after the initial trial that Paul, who was a drug addict and an alcoholic with a long record of violence, was also a police informant who had traded information for money on more than one occasion. The problem was that because Paul Hillsden had been such a late addition to the witness list, the defence's lawyers had not had time to properly investigate his background. And because of this, they did not know and therefore could not question Paul Hilsden on his activities as an informer. Hilsden, who failed to turn up at the appeals court and had to be fetched by police from Maidenhead, for his part denied ever having traded information with the police. Justice Ackner, Addressing the appeals court said that he believed that if Haynes's defence team had been given the opportunity to question Hilsden about his role as an informer at the original trial, he would have denied what the justice referred to as his role as a grass. Justice Ackner said of Paul Hilsden that, from first to last before us, he was a wholly unsatisfactory witness. Not only that, but he added that, in the eyes of the jury, perjury would have been added to his other qualities of dishonesty and unreliability. On Monday the 30th of March 1984, having spent 14 months in prison, Michael was cleared of Brenda's murder. Justice Ackner was quoted as saying that if the jury at his trial had known the chief prosecution witness was a paid police informer, they would not have hung a dog on his evidence. There are a few photographs taken in the aftermath of this. In one, Michael, who wears a huge smile, hugs his brother George and sister Patricia. In the other, He bends his knees and stoops into frame to wrap his arms around his mother, Lillian. He has a Cheshire cat smile which isn't quite pleasant to look at. And his mother, who had burst into tears as Michael emerged from the court shouting, I'm free, at the top of his lungs, bears a look of relief as she grins into the camera's lens. Visibly emotional, she told the reporters, I've been waiting for this day. I knew it would come, but I didn't think it would be this soon. Michael said that he felt bitter at his wrongful imprisonment and would be seeking compensation. Echoing his mother's statement, he went on to say, Now I have to forget the past and have got to pick up the pieces of my life. I'm over the moon. After the hearing, I could have kissed the judges. I've always pleaded my innocence, and now justice has been done. I never believed I would be in prison for life, although I didn't think I would be free so soon. His celebrations on the day of release were described by him as being the biggest pint of beer he could find, followed up by champagne at his mother's home in Desborough Close. When asked briefly what he felt had happened to Brenda, he said, Her death was either suicide or an accident. I believe in my mind it was an accident. I tried to revive her, but it was too late. An interesting footnote to Michael's involvement on the wrong side of the law is that on Tuesday, November 20th, 1984, he again appeared in court, this time charged with obtaining more than £5,000 from the Department of Health and Social Security by deception. The offence, which only came to light after he had been arrested for murder, stemmed from a period of 148 weeks up until 1982, in which he was claiming benefits at the same time as working as a window cleaner. He admitted the charges, and Judge Peregrine Blomfield told him that while the offence merited a substantial prison sentence, on taking into account the time Haynes had spent in custody, he decided to discharge him for two years. As for what happened to Brenda Haynes that night, well, there are still no real answers, It is clear that the testimony of Paul Hilsden made for a compelling case for murder and that without it, a conviction was in no way guaranteed. But Brenda had over a hundred bruises on her body at the time of her death. She was suffering from a mental illness and lived with a man who regularly inflicted violence upon her. While she had started divorce proceedings... She and Michael were still sharing the same house. And I can't begin to imagine how she must have been feeling or the struggles she must have been going through to have attempted suicide on multiple occasions throughout her final months. Currently, in 2022, the statistics tell us that on average, two women a week are murdered by a partner or an ex-partner. And while nowadays there is discourse around domestic violence in its many forms, in the early 1980s there would have been very little help out there for Brenda. She wouldn't have had access to, or probably even have known about the support networks available to her, which, while in existence, were still insecurely funded and few and far between. We can hear in the way that Bruce Laughlin so dismissively described what she would have gone through when he called her, to some extent, a battered wife. That at the time, it was still something that could be underplayed and that some people were still receptive to that idea. When I researched Brenda's case, I began to realise that regardless of whether or not Michael Haynes physically held her head under the water that evening... His actions still played a part in what happened to her. When you read the accounts afterwards, how he called her a cow to the Raphaels, when, in all probability, he already knew that she was dead, or an inconsiderate bitch for leaving the house at Longleat Gardens to her son, you get a small idea of the kind of man he was at the time. Initially following the investigation into Brenda's death and before the charges against him were upgraded to murder He had been charged with assault Actually before it was dropped in favor of the murder charge. The case almost made it to court I'll let you decide whether in the light of his sentence being overturned perhaps the pursuit of a conviction for assault would have been a better option In February of 2022, an article in the Guardian newspaper claimed that hundreds of suicides a year could be linked to abuse in the home. The article goes on to state that, while in France, if domestic abuse is a prominent factor in a case of suicide, then the perpetrator can expect a sentence of up to 10 years. In the UK, we have no such guidelines. I'll link the article in the show notes below because I think it's an important one and highlights the great deal of work that there is still to do to protect vulnerable people in abusive relationships. As well as that article, I'll also include numbers and website information on a variety of different resources for anyone looking for help or to educate themselves about any of the issues covered in today's episode. Too many people suffer alone at the hands of a partner, and while not all outcomes are as extreme as in Brenda's case, the damage done by abusive relationships can have a profound and lasting impact on those who have lived through them, long after they have left their abuser behind. Nowadays, every 30 seconds in the UK, the police receive a domestic abuse-related call and one in four women will experience domestic abuse in their lifetime. We're nowhere near the stage of eradicating this kind of behaviour, and there is still much more that needs to be done to deal with the causes and to make sure that anyone who is suffering knows the resources and help available to them. What happened to Brenda has been all but forgotten by the majority of people. And yet, her experiences are a mirror of those which many are still living today. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.